Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, Agora Podcast family. This is Dr. Gary Chahot. You might know me as the host of the French History Podcast, the show that tells the history of France from 3 million years ago to present. What you might not know is that I am also a fiction author. Two years ago, my debut novel, The Maiden Voyage of New York City, was published, telling the story of a future post-flood NYC floating on the waves and the conspiracy to bring it down. Last month, my second novel, The Afghan Wedding, came out and tells the bizarre, darkly comedic story of Avisa Fatah, a young woman from the desert of death in western Afghanistan whose wedding night is interrupted by a sudden firefight that ends with her disappearing and reappearing at a secretive U.S. military base at the South Pole. If you want to support indie fiction and my bizarre stories sound appealing to you, please check them out. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Dr. Urosh Matik. Dr. Urosh Matik earned his PhD in 2017, examining war and the violent treatment of prisoners in New Kingdom, Egypt. Now, he works for the Archaeological Institute in Austria, and he is the author of numerous books and a great many articles. You will find links to Dr. Matic's online profiles and bibliographies in the episode description. Dr. Matic sat down with the podcast to discuss some questions around the ancient Egyptian state and its attitude towards foreigners, people living outside of the borders, quote-unquote, of the two lands. The relationship between the pharaohs and the people who lived outside their territory was complicated. Sometimes it could be incredibly violent, with warfare or enslavement. Other times it could be more nuanced and cooperative, with trade and diplomatic outreach. All of these things mix in a potent historical tale, one that archaeologists are still uncovering and reconstructing. As you can imagine, studies of ancient Nubia and the ancient Nubians' relationship to Egypt they are complex. And Dr. Matic is one of these scholars who is working at the forefront of theory and how we understand these ancient ideas. My conversation with Dr. Matic is divided into three parts, roughly 20 to 25 minutes each. Across the full range of the interview, we discuss war, violence, representation, and identity between Egyptians and peoples living outside their borders. We specifically get into the reign of Tutankhamun, but we also include evidence from other periods of Egyptian history, to add more to the picture of what was happening and why. As you can guess, this conversation occasionally gets a little bit academic, 
but every now and again I've included interludes where I summarise what we have just been talking about and what we are going to discuss. Hopefully, that will help everything flow nicely and keep everyone on the same page. Now then, enough from me. Please welcome Dr. Urosh Matik for his interview with the History of Egypt podcast. So, Urosh, good morning, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Good morning, Dominic, and uh, good evening uh, to <laughs> others who are not in that part of the world, and thank you for having me. It's really a thank pleasure. Thanks for coming. Good evening to you, and good morning to me, we'll say. So, you are currently based in Vienna, is that correct? Yes, I'm a postdoctoral researcher based in Vienna, Austria, at the Austrian Archaeological Institute of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Have you had? Have you met a stranger at a cocktail party, and you had to explain your work? You know that question. What do you? What do you do? How right. would you describe your sort of your research specialty broadly? Yeah, so that's a nice question. It's a tricky one because usually when I get. Uh, such questions, I already receive an answer from the other side because they already put me into this position of someone who uh, is, I don't know, uh, in their um, erroneous understanding of archaeology, uh, digging out dinosaurs and stuff like that. Mm. <laughs> um, but then when I turn to actual topics I'm doing research on, they find it interesting, but they seem to distance themselves. So yeah, my answer would be, I'm an Egyptologist. That means that I'm doing research on ancient Egypt. Mm. And this does not only include pyramids. I have nothing to do with pyramids. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that means is that I'm reconstructing past events and ideas based on textual and material remains. At this very moment, I'm working on a project which is dealing with the third millennium pottery from upper Egyptian site of Komombo. <laughs> and I'm using pottery to explore the following question, and that is, if political changes in Egypt of that time, namely in first intermediate period, influenced ceramic production at the site, to what extent? But apart from this, and this is where I usually get a look, uh, <laughs> I'm continuously working on topics such as war and violence in ancient Egypt and also gender. So mm -hmm. I would have to explain this. Yeah, I would have to say that uh, my research uh, for a very long time was on violent treatments of enemies and prisoners of war, as attested in texts and iconography, but also possibly in some bioarchaeological remains or in the archaeological record itself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So broadly speaking, war and the violent treatment of prisoners was your, was your early sort of focus, particularly with your uh, PhD research, am I correct? Yes, exactly. So in 2012, I started my PhD at the University of Münster in Germany. And I was supervised there by Professor Angelika Lovasa and by Professor Anthony Spellinger from Auckland. Mm -hmm. Evidence for torture, mutilation, execution, mm -hmm. and different categories of victims of violence and actors of violence, yes. 
The conversation now turns to questions of state violence, when the pharaohs of Egypt would execute prisoners and display them for specific political and religious purposes. In the following section, Urosh makes reference to the Book of the Dead and the reign of Amunhotep II. Coincidentally, you will find both of these topics discussed in the same set of episodes. If you want to know more about Amunhotep II and the Book of the Dead, you can visit episodes 80 and 81. There is a link in the episode description if you want to learn more. Now, back to the conversation. Now, at the moment, the podcast narrative has been dealing with the reign of Tutankhamun. And in the reign of Tutankhamun particularly, we get a great deal of visual material and some textual material about Egyptians' relationships with the communities in the south. Now, for the sake of for the sake of discussion, we're going to have to call this region Nubia. I'm increasingly not fond of that term, but you know, just to keep keep things simple and everyone on the same page, we're going to have to talk about them as Nubians. I would like to be more specific. You know, Wawat, Kush, Miam, um, Teket, that kind of area. But we'll just keep it simple. So, in the reign of Tutankhamun, we get a we get a lot more evidence or a lot more visual and written iconography and representation around Nubians, quote-unquote, and their interactions and relationships with the Egyptian state, particularly. So, as you've done a great deal of uh, research on questions of state violence, uh, state interconnections and relationships, could you give us a sort of brief idea of your of your research so far on Egyptian behavior between um, the Egyptian state and Nubians during the New Kingdom or earlier? You know, what what sort of things have you examined and what were some of your major findings? All right. So uh, back to my PhD topic. So as I said, I investigated evidence for torture, mutilation and execution. And this evidence comes from textual and iconographic record, but as I said, also from possibly some uh, bioarchaeological evidence of violence or trauma on on bodies. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the victims of these violent acts were Egyptian enemies, so non-combatants also in Syria, Palestine in North, and Nubia in South, and Libya in the West. And as you are, I'm also very well aware of the problems which come with all of these terms and how simplify things more than they actually say uh, something about past reality. But this is an entirely different question, which for the sake of argument, I'm going to leave aside for now. And one of my major findings in, in my PhD was that there is a big difference in violence conducted by the pharaoh and the violence conducted by the soldiers. So, for example, the violence conducted by the pharaoh, at least in texts and images, has parallels in violence conducted by deities and underworld demons in their treatment of the dead in the underworld. Mm. And the violence conducted by the soldiers is more mundane. Mm. And I interpreted these differences being rooted in ontological difference, so basically in the difference between a nature of a being so pharaoh being of divine nature himself mm-hmm. also acts accordingly mm-hmm. and in order to communicate this difference uh, some violent acts were carefully staged mm-hmm. and now coming to Nubia, 
I'm going to give an example which we have in the Elephantine and Amada stele of Amenhotep II mm-hmm. of the 8th dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the fairly same texts on this stele, we are informed on how Amenhotep II brought seven princes, or Leru, Uru, chiefs, from the region of Taxi, or a toponym Taxi, which is probably in North Syria. And in the text, it is stated that he slayed them himself. Mm. Then he hanged his princess, Owero, upside down on the prow of his peak or falcon ship. And it is very interesting that in this particular context, the Egyptian words which are used to express this are emsehed to put someone upside down. So this state <laughs> is by the Sehed. Now Sehed is, in this particular and other contexts, uh, determined with uh, a sign in the form of a man really turned upside down. Mm. And we also know of beings called Sehedu, which are attested in the pyramid texts, but also mm. in the coffin texts and also in the Book of the Dead. And these beings are starting from the coffin texts, also attested as some kind of antipodes. So they live in this upside down state, which means that they uh, eat their own excrements and drink their own urine. And this is something we know from these uh, underworld texts that the diseased are afraid of. They don't want to be in this state. So Basically, when we have the king in a ship with the enemies turned upside down and the text alluding to Sehedu, and the king is parading in a triumphal return to Egypt, mm-hmm. but then the text states also that of altogether seven of these princes, six were piled in Karnak and one was driven in a ship all the way to Jebel Barkal in Nubia on the fourth cataract, which is some 400 kilometers north of Khartoum. And then he was piled there. <laughs> and uh, it is not a coincidence, it is definitely not a coincidence, I think, this was planned and staged that <laughs> both of these temples, Karnak and Jebel Barkal, are related to a moon. Mm. Uh, so we know from later sources that Jebel Barkal was the birthplace of a moon. So a moon is basically living in this mountain. So no wonder that we also have this play of numbers. So we have altogether seven princes from the north. Seven is a, is a number of the Palatine age in Egypt. Amenhotep II is saying, I am the ruler of the entire known world from north to south. And I am basically like Ray. Unfortunately, there was a brief error with the audio in this next little section, and part of Urosh's answer was lost. For context, Urosh is about to introduce chapter 101 of the Book of the Dead, which describes a particular section of Ra, or Ray's, nighttime journey through the underworld. There is a link in the description if you'd like to read along. Once again, that is chapter 101 of the Book of the Dead. Now, 
Back to Urosh's answer. In chapter 101, if I remember correctly, there is uh, a sentence in mm -hmm. which uh, Are is described in his journey in the underworld and he encounters this Sehedul mm -hmm. and he's supposed to help them not to be in this state. Mm -hmm. So basically we have a confirmation that Are on his ship, on his journey, also encounters this Sehedul which the pharaoh is kind of staging in reality. And for me, it's really important that this is something which could have been seen by the populace of Egypt on the Nile banks. And we have several other documents starting already from the second intermediate period or the second seal of Mose, but also on the restoration seal of Tutankhamun later on. That the populace was on the river banks and that they were in a sort of euphoric frenzy. So it is described how they are laughing and, uh, and also crying from uh, happiness of seeing God himself uh, come back to Egypt and being triumphant. And these can be staged in reality. So something which is what we consider to be a, a mythological motive, a story, something related to, uh, yes, the religious world of the view or of, uh, view of the world, is something ruler can put to use. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, broad, broadly speaking, let's let's break that down a little bit um, for take for takeaway. So. The, Egypt, the Egyptian conception of the divine, the divine world operates on different rules to the mundane human interactions. And the, the Nesud Biti, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, is operating at the very least as an intermediary between both spheres. And much of his behavior is either intent, consciously intended or coincidentally replicates, we'll say both, the the structure of the divine world, in this case, the world which Ra, which Atum, which Amun has ordained, the world of Ma'at, if we want to simplify it. So when a king like Amunhotep II, Tutankhamun, Ramesses II, performs these acts of extreme violence, they're not just doing it for violence's sake. There is a display there is a religious construction, symbolism. They are communicating to the people, to the gods, that they are fulfilling this divine order. Have I summarized that correctly? Yes, and in an excellent manner, because I think <laughs> this you. is one of the key uh, contemporary questions, uh, which uh, have not really reached Egyptology yet. So okay. uh, I'm talking very specifically about the so-called ontological turn in okay. anthropology and increasingly in archaeology. For the what sake that, of my listeners, could you describe what this what ontological turn means? Gladly. So uh, ontological turn in anthropology means going beyond um, viewing um, different cultures or societies as uh, 
uh, one or many interpretations of one physical world hmm. through our Western epistemology. What that basically means is um, when ancient Egyptian tells us that there is such a thing as a ba or uh, a ka, that we should take this statement seriously and not interpret them as ideological and so on and so forth. There are different branches within this so-called ontological term, and I'm not going to go into details. I'm just going to be here all day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to say that at least in Egyptology, not many authors dealt with that. Mm -hmm. So as far as I know, um, Professor Joachim Friedrich Quark from Heidelberg dealt with Mm -hmm. this particular issue of the divine nature of the king in some of his uh, works. And uh, Rune Njot also uh, dealt uh, with the issue of ontological turn in Egyptology and how the ideas of the ontological turn can be put to use in uh, Egyptological research. And I myself dealt with this uh, in several of my articles focusing on violence, but also on materiality of the divine body. Mm -hmm. And... um, Yes, so to summarize again, it basically means taking the so-called native ideas or statements about the world seriously, mm-hmm. not trying to devoid them of the reality they could have had for these people in the past. Absolutely. So for example, when we say, is the king divine or not divine, he is definitely an intermediary between the divine world and the world of the humans or animals and plants and so on and so forth, because ontological turn wants to enrich the world today, but also of the past with other entities and consider them seriously. But for us, it is important to uh, really take this idea seriously that somewhere out there in ancient Egypt could have thought that that king is a god on earth hmm. and that he really has divine powers so Absolutely. this is what the ontological term means yes right mm-hmm. so again broadly broadly summarizing there is a a growing school of thought within anthropology one that i happen to agree with which is that we we cannot treat the attitudes and beliefs of any historical people as metaphors, myths, legends. We have to treat them as a perceived reality of the way the world works. We can't simplify something like Necheru gods into a concept that fits within a Western biblical framework. We can't simplify uh, beings like Bess or the Seven Hathors as demons, quote unquote, but we need to treat these as real forces within the world as they perceive it. Now, obviously, that might bring some tension with the way we try to perceive the world as physical, natural forces and things like that. But as historians, as researchers, as as people trying to genuinely understand these people, 
we have to treat what they say about the world with absolute seriousness. And obviously there are instances, texts, where we see some of those people questioning those ideals, grappling with the, the world as they are experiencing it versus the world as they're told. That does happen. But uh, just to summarize broadly, when we consider questions of violence or the power of the pharaoh, the role of the pharaoh, and the relationship between all of those things and the outside world, we have to treat, we have to accept that it is happening within a slightly different view of reality to the one we practice. And it's, it's not a, it's neither less nor more legitimate than our own perception, but it is a distinctive one and we have to acknowledge it. Exactly. This brings us to the end of part one in my discussion. After the break, we will move on to the 18th dynasty material, the reign of Tutankhamun specifically. We will get a chance to review some of the material that I've been discussing in recent episodes, and get a sense of how Egyptians were interacting with peoples from the south during this period. That is part two of my discussion with Dr. Urosh Matik, coming after the break. See you in a moment. Part two of my conversation with Dr. Urosh Matik. Okay, so again, sort of cycling back, Urosh, you've you've done a great deal of research on particularly state or elite level uh, representation, attitudes, imagery, how the pharaoh depicts himself relating to foreign peoples, how wealthy and powerful individuals who are not the pharaoh depict foreigners or interactions with outside states in their terms you've researched a lot on these kind of this kind of imagery texts and behavior now so at the moment the podcast is focusing on nubia or the southern southern kingdoms i'll say and the relationship particularly in the late 18th dynasty between the egyptian state and the people who represent the Egyptian state, the powerful, the wealthy, the um, religiously influential. In your research, have you have you noticed any significant changes in the Egyptian policy towards Southerners? More specifically, have you noticed the have you noticed any trends or changes in how the Egyptian kings and the Egyptian elites any changes in how they act towards the southern kingdoms across the old middle and new new kingdom periods well i think this is a very complex question and i also don't like giving simple answers as i said we have to differentiate between policy towards southerners and other foreigners in text and images of different genres mm -hmm. this has to be differentiated from the actual policy we can reconstruct based on archaeological record. Mm -hmm. So this means what we have in the decorum, and by this I mean structured ways of 
depicting certain phenomena in a certain way for certain audience for certain reasons. Sure. This decorum has to be differentiated from what we have in the archaeological record. Mm. So, for example, as we know, negative attitudes toward foreigners, as described by Antonio Loprieno using the word topos, mm. are continuously attested. Mm-hmm. But we also know of positively connotated foreigners, which would fall under this category of Ignesis. Mm-hmm. However, we should not forget that, as Loprieno argued himself, uh, both topos and mimesis are literally constructs. Yeah. So some Egyptologists have misunderstood him, in my opinion. They use okay. this term also for visual representations of foreigners and mm-hmm. also constantly to describe real encounters. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you an example. Great. So... Uh, Already in Semna and Oranati Stila of Senusa III, 15 of the 12th dynasty, Middle Kingdom. 15 of the 12th dynasty, Middle Kingdom, originally placed in Middle Kingdom fortresses just south of the second cataract. So, as I said, Semna and Oranati. And there, not only do we have a description saying that the king plundered the wives of the Nubians, so the women of the Nubians, and the verb used is hak. So to plunder, as you would plunder anything else, as we know from also lists of spoils of war, which give us the haku or that which was plundered. But mm-hmm. not only that, the Nubians themselves are described using the word hem. Mm-hmm. And this derives from a verb hemi, to drive back or to repel. And it was variously translated by numerous Egyptologists. I don't want to go into details now. I discussed this in detail in my forthcoming book, Violence and Gender in Ancient Egypt, which okay. is coming end of May by Rutledge. Mm-hmm. Right. And there I discussed this in detail. But for us, it is important to take into consideration the gender sexual connotation of the word hem, which mm. Professor Parkinson translated with the word back turner, relating this to the translation of the verb. Mm. And really in, in some texts, it is juxtaposed to the word chai or, or man. So this, mm. is, this is a sort of a man who is not as manly as the others. And mm. it is also determined with a phallus determinative, so the word ham. Mm. And some also went that far to relate it to the ancient Egyptian word for woman and so on and so forth. So Mm. not going really much into details here, we have constantly in various texts, these representations of Nubians, including their soldiers as cowards. So they are the Mm. ones who are back, they're running away. Mm. However, we know that Egyptians regularly employed Nubian soldiers in the army. We should be really careful not to confuse ideology for reality. And we know of Nubian mercenaries stationed at Kebelain, first intermediate period, but we also have later Nubian contingents in the Egyptian army, for example, depicted on the Gilefs of Ramses III in Medinet Habu. So there are Nubian soldiers in the army, really mm. so coward, uh, su- such coward, cowards. Um, they would probably not be employed 
for such a long time period, please. So just to summarize, when these official royal inscriptions, proclamations are describing Nubians, they like to describe them as cowards because that suits the Egyptian royal image. Compared to the king and the gods of Egypt, nobody can be brave. They must flee because the power is so overwhelming. But of course, this is a, a propaganda term which specifically fits into the, how the Egyptian king is appearing. You contrast that with the reality where southerners are participating in the Egyptian army for a long time. There's a very clear distinction between the official narrative and the re the day-to-day -day reality. Exactly, and we have to think about the context and the audience. Mm -hmm. So these are stealers located in military forts in mm -hmm. Nubia. And the people who have access to them are people stationed in these forts. So this is not something everyone can see. Mm. This is communicating to a very specific audience. Mm. So when we, when we compare these different realities, we always have to take context into consideration. So when discussing relationships between ancient communities and peoples, we have to be aware of a variety of factors that influence the material, how the evidence is shaped by ancient ideas and certain preconceptions. As Urosh says, context is everything. Having discussed some background concepts which are informing the ancient Egyptian evidence, Urosh and I now get into some nitty-gritty details. Specifically, examples from the reign of Tutankhamun that give a sense of the interactions and the relationships between the Egyptian state and people of the south, aka Nubians. Okay, so these so some of these conceptual factors, you know, really shape the Egyptian way they depict these um, individuals foreign groups, enemies, and all that. How can researchers like yourself and others transcend those factors and understand the bigger picture of what's being communicated? All right. So, yeah, I'm now going to turn to a different example because until now we mostly discussed imagery or metaphors in texts. Mm -hmm. And one of the topics I've been working on uh, as a side project, uh, more or less, are the so-called lists of spoils of war. Okay. So when one thinks about ancient Egyptian lists of spoils of war, one, of course, thinks about something which is very administrative. So their goal mm -hmm. is to record, uh, plunder, uh, and for the sake of record keeping, we expect that these lists are precise and that they are ordered and that they have certain structure, which is mm -hmm. all true. But none of the lists I worked on so far um, come as separate texts. So they are part of much, com much more complex texts. So they are only one element in the entire narrative. And of course, this narrative is focused on the deeds of the king. So uh, the king himself, the pharaoh, is the, the principal protagonist there. And one would then think that this devoids 
these lists of spoils of war from any sort of reality, which I think is um, not true, because we have to think about how these texts are composed. And we know um, that although maybe the overall product, the entire text of a certain stealer, um, comes forth as very rhetorical, very propagandistic, if you like. But we know that these lists of spoils of war were recorded on papyri, although we do not have these papyri, but we have depictions of scribes recording lists of spoils of war on papyri. Mm -hmm. So although until now, not single list of spoils of war in that form has been found or uh, has been preserved, um, mm. uh, as far as I know. Um, but we know that they did it. And they probably did it in heretic. They probably did it in heretic because if you're recording something as a scribe on a battlefield, you are not going to take your time drawing <laughs> uh, hieroglyphic signs there. So these presumably original lists had to be transcribed from hieratic into hieroglyphic script and then integrated into these texts. Mm. Which basically means that if we are very careful focusing on the structure of the text in which these lists are found, their exact positioning, but also the structure of the lists themselves, maybe we can make this interpretative leap and really go back to reality. And uh, there are several examples which really nicely confirm this. So the numbers match very nicely. Um, for example, in several of these lists, we have uh, captured Marianu uh, soldiers. And then we have a list of uh, objects which were also plundered. And when you look at these objects, you see that their number and character exactly fits the number of the Mariano soldiers captured. So you can say that each Mariano is equipped with one chariot, two horses, so and so many arrows, and so on and so forth. So there is something there in this list of spoils of war. And mm -hmm. yeah, I use this just as an example of how context and careful contextualization of what we are studying can help us bypass the ideological and the propagandistic. So more specifically, could you give us some examples, say, of Egyptian depictions or lists of uh, prisoners, foreigners, or individuals from other countries? Can you give a sense of how that, how that appears in the Egyptian evidence? Gladly. So uh, back to the, the topic of uh, Nubia and changing attitudes and so on, as, as we already discussed, um, mm -hmm. I think it is important to stress, as a lot of listeners would already know, that uh, for the first time in the New Kingdom, we have actual settling of uh, Nubia by incomers from Egypt. So not only uh, soldiers and companions of the army, but also uh, other people. And mm -hmm. for the first time, they're really building towns in Nubia and living there with the local population, sometimes together, sometimes not. Uh, 
this is a very complex topic. However, uh, Nubia is being administered, governed by the Egyptians and by some locals in the Egyptian service. Mm. And one of the examples which is very often discussed in this context is the famous Kibun uh, Tomb number 40 of Hui. And there in the so-called tribute scene, which depicts various uh, groups of foreigners bringing uh, objects, people, and things um, to the pharaoh, or he's official in front of him. There in this particular tribute scene from the uh, tomb of Hui, we have a depiction of several registers with Nubians. And in one of these registers, we have a representation of a certain Hekanefa, mm -hmm. who was aware of Niam in Nova Nubia. And there in the tomb of Hui, he's depicted as a Nubian man. However, in his own tomb in Lower Nubia in Toshka, he is depicted as an Egyptian official. Mm. And of course, this difference in representation has steered a lot of discussion in Egyptology by uh, various authors, and I'm not going to go into details. But what I think is missing in these discussions is the focus on someone else in this scene rather than Hekanefa himself. So mm. Hekanefa there is not depicted alone. He has an entire entourage of men and women. And uh, there is a difference in how women are depicted there. Mm. So uh, some women are depicted as elite women. One particular is in a chariot which is being uh, drawn by oxen. And then at the very end of this register on the lab, there is a depiction of Nubian women as we usually find them in tribute scenes. That means they are depicted with long skirts and upper body parts exposed or nude, if you like, and they're often having baskets which they are carrying with thumb lines and there are children inside. Sometimes also they have children next to them and they are holding these kids for their hands. And this, this iconographic type of a Nubian woman with children is known from many other uh, 18 dynasty tribute scenes. And one which I find particularly interesting is the one from an earlier tomb, from the tomb of Rechmire, even tomb 100. And there in the fifth register of the tribute scenes, we have these women from Nubia and Syria and their children depicted. And very interestingly, there is a difference in different uh, groups of these Nubian women. So starting from the very right, going to left, we have first group of Nubian women who are depicted in long skirts. They have short hair. They have children with them, both in the baskets and holding the children for their hands. Mm -hmm. Then we have a second group where we have Nubian women with longer hair, so not short hair, no children with them, also long skirts, and also upper body part exposed. Mm -hmm. And then the last group we have are Nubian girls with this mm -hmm. very, very distinct lock of hair. Mm -hmm. They seem to be almost 
nude. So they're definitely not wearing the same clothes as other women in this scene. Mm. And interestingly, there is a parallel for this sort of ordering of women in distribute scenes according to sexual maturity, if you like, huh. in a very, very late example. And this is the list of spoils of war after the second Libyan war of Ramses III. And this is preserved in Medina Kabul record, where we have a list of spoils of war, including women, described as Hemut. But then these women, of which we have a total number, are divided into very specific groups. Group number one are Zut. Group number two are Neferut. And group number three are Sheriut. So hmm. we can, of course, now speculate about the meanings of these words in the nation, hmm. of the New Kingdom, just to give the listeners some point of perspective. This is a very complex theme, but let's say Hemut in this context would be a general term for women. Zut could refer to married women. Neferut could be what we call pubescent girls or social virgins. And Sheriut would be very little girls. And then you put these terms there in this tribute scene from the Tomb of Rechmire, you exactly see that. You see different groups of women together matching Egyptian notions of gender and age and sexual mat maturity, so matching the Egyptian categories. And mm -hmm. what I want to point here is what other scholars discussing distributed scenes did not really take into account, is that when people are imprisoned coming from different cultures and they are being registered, they are being registered according to the categories of the victorious side. And not only that, they are being transported to Egypt, they are being deported, and be it, they are being assigned, let's say, to variety of temple workshops and other workshops, and mm. they find themselves in a society which maybe has different categories of gender or identity as their own culture and society. So mm. all of a sudden, you do not belong to a group you maybe belonged at home, you are being put into a certain group. So certain categories of identity are imposed to you. Mm. And this is something uh, much discussed by a variety of post-colonial uh, scholars from what we call the Global South. But uh, very specifically, mm. this is uh, the work of Maria Lugones from Argentina. She's a feminist philosopher and uh, post-colonial theoretician. And she argued uh, that colonialism also meant changes in gender identity of the local populations. With colonial understandings of identity and gender and body being imposed mm. to um, the native populations. And of course, we cannot mm. copy paste this idea but at least her work can make us wonder if something similar was happening when ancient Egyptians were mm. deporting these different people from different lands into Egypt. And in these encounters between different 
societies, cultures, but also gender systems, there were some kind of violent impositions of, of uh, societies, uh, gender system and norms. Okay, so if I could, if we can summarize that sort of broadly, the 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 challenge for the Egyptians when bringing these large numbers of captives, prisoners home from foreign regions, the challenge at the very first point is organization and logistics. How do we organize this huge number of people, animals, um, items that we've brought? So from a very basic starting point, they need to divide these things into categories. And the categories they use, such as um, Zut, uh, Neferut, like young and beautiful, or Sherit, you know, very young, gives us a sense of what the Egyptians specifically valued in, in this case, the women they brought back. And there are many types of categorization, status, gender, uh, role, skills, even, um, you know, a carpenter, it might be categorized as a carpenter because that's what they're useful for. Anyway, um, so these these depictions that we see in the tomb of Rekmire, in the tomb of Hoy, and later in the war records of Ramesses III, the system of categorization which the Egyptians seem to be using in certain contexts gives us an insight into how they value the ways they valued certain types of individuals. In the case of women, age, beauty, or sexual maturity and things are categories for them. And in other for other objects, there are different categories. Exactly. This is this is my my main point here. Mm, okay. Now we move to the slightly larger discussion of the Egyptian state's attitude towards the southern territories, towards the peoples of Nubia, how they expressed it over time, and what we can say about it. So, broadly speaking, across, say, across the millennia, are there any consistent features that you see in the Egyptian royal attitude? towards southerners, their policy? Is there, are there common thread, threads that you can see? Yes, but I think that they are not so much different than attitudes towards other uh, enemies. Um, well, I, I don't say foreigners because an attitude to a foreigner is not an, the same as an attitude to an enemy. And mm -hmm. as I specifically dealt with foreigners in their role as enemies, this mm. is uh, to what I'm going to... Uh, refer now. So uh, from the point of view of the Egyptian king and his army, they're all cowards. They're all mm. back turners. They're all running away. They're all masses of scared men who are women-like, which we know from, from certain texts and are also mentioned not as manly as Egyptian men. So in, in this uh, royal decorum, we have this hyper-masculinity of the king and mm. the enemies are being in a way um, feminized or emasculated. And this is uh, something which I really find interesting. And we have parallels for this in many societies that we mm -hmm. tend to um, reverse the gender of the enemy. And I think this tells us a lot about ancient Egyptian view of gender and uh, gender system. 
and asymmetrical relations of power with the gender system in Egypt and how this is being then used as a metaphor of victory. Mm. Uh, okay, so uh, the, the Egyptian, the Egyptian uh, propaganda, royal iconography, you know, feminizes their enemies, describes them as cowards, but this differs from the day-to-day -day reality. And there are obviously questions that we will address at a later date about sexuality, gender, identity, and the violence and the relationships between those. We will come back to those questions in a future episode because they could be a full discussion in themselves. So coming now to the the sort of the late 18th dynasty specifically. Around the time of King Tutankhamun, the Egyptian royal household had been consistently ruling or dominating parts of Nubia for approximately 200 years. And we have plentiful artistic and written records for the interactions, the relationships, and the systems that underpin these. Now, to, to start this question off, you know, very simply, not every interaction between Egyptians and Nubians is violent. There is a wide spectrum of communication and behavior going on here, and we will we have to dive into all of that and acknowledge it. So first of all, in your research on the relationships between Egyptians and Nubians, what kind of factors or influences shape the images and the historical records that actually survive? Hmm. Would you like me to give you a very, very specific example? Um, Please. Yeah. So as we were talking about Tutankhamun, let, let's just go to, let's say, uh, his famous painted box. We are talking about uh, a, a small uh, object um, on which we find battle representations uh, on two different sides of this small casket. And on one side, we see King Tutankhamun storming into a mass of uh, Salvaners or Nubians, if you like. And on the other side, we have the representation of the king storming into a mass of uh, Northerners or uh, Syro-Palestinians, if you like. In these particular scenes, we find Egyptian soldiers uh, cutting off the hands of uh, these enemies. Mm. So scenes are quite bloody. Mm -hmm. And there are also some instances of uh, decapitated bodies of Nubians there. So not only that we have representations of him storming into a mass of enemies from the north and from the south of different sides of this painted box, but we also have depictions of hunt of wild animals, mm. which mm. actually match those of the battle representations. And I devoted a whole chapter in my PhD about how war can be framed as hunt and mm. how attacking an enemy is like hunting a wild animal, hunt, hunting game, and how actually in this very process, the enemy is dehumanized. So she is in a way presented as a wild animal, as something one is entitled to kill. Mm. 
And parallels for that, again, come from various, various cultures and societies that a sort of dehumanization is a prerequisite for the legitimization of violence. So, yes, so this would be one of the examples of how um, such representations of violence are framed and through which social mechanisms or metaphors. So the reign of Tutankhamun shows us some very clear images of ideology and royal attitudes to enemies, quote unquote, in a general sense. But that includes Nubians and people from the east, north and west. So these relationships are complicated. It's not just one thing, and there is a lot of nuance in all of these interactions. We now come to the end of part two in my conversation with Dr. Urosh Matik. After the break, we continue to explore Egyptian attitudes towards enemies and foreigners more generally, and we also dive into Urosh's career as an Egyptologist, what inspired him to join the field, and some of his experiences as a researcher. That is after the break. See you in a moment. So far, Dr. Urosh Matik and I have discussed Egyptian attitudes to enemies as a concept, and foreigners more generally. We've explored artistic references, texts, and iconography that relates to these concepts, and people and objects from the time of Tutankhamun and earlier periods. Now, we bring this around to a sort of big-picture summary overall. How does Urosh imagine these things in the larger perspective? Okay, so Urosh, we've covered a lot of a lot of points here and a lot of various aspects of ancient behaviors. Just to sort of give a very brief sort of summary, some takeaway ideas, when we look at the relationships and the interactions between Egyptians and foreigners, enemies, and the vast array of um categories that go into that. When we're looking at this material, are there some are there some key things we should be aware of that we should be careful of? Anything in particular that you think people should really be aware of when they're looking at this material? Yes, this is an excellent question and a very important question. So in my opinion, what we have to be aware is the legacy of colonialism in Egyptology, Mm -hmm. colonial ways of thinking. So just, just quickly, for example, this whole experience of Egyptian rule in Nubia was mm. for a very, very long time uh, viewed through the lens of colonialism. So, for example, George Andrew Reisner even went so far to say that the experience of Nubians during the Middle Kingdom was not much different than the experience of Sudanese under British colonial occupation. And he writes that basically nothing changed. So the Mm. population governed by the British and governed by the Egyptians 
um, is somehow ahistorical. They never mm. change. They're the same now as they were then. And mm. in this context of when he writes, he devoids these people of any sort of agency. And he views the British basically as the dominant force and he equates Egyptians and the British. Mm. Well, now for decades already in archeology, span but also in Egyptology, we are at this point when we are shifting these paradigms and not only are we aware of the colonial legacy, but we are actively deconstructing the old interpretations. And in my opinion, what we have to bear in mind when we deal both with texts, images, and the archeological record concerning the question of Egyptian attitude towards foreigners and enemies is the complexity and that we should not create simplified narratives because even in our own world, nothing is as simple as that binary opposition, colonizer and colonized. Mm. But also one thing we should remember is that it is not enough to change perspectives from aggressor to so-called victim or from colonizer to colonized and to call this post-colonial because mm. in my opinion this is a mistake what we have to change is the entire narrative so mm. we should not shift the view and now interpret from the point of view of local population by still applying and using the same old term such as mm. colonizer colonized colonial towns in Nubia and so on and so forth, mm. we should simply disrupt this whole colonial narrative. Mm. So focus on complexity, focus on local issues, local micro histories, and how these maybe work together towards a global narrative. So mm. just as there is no single Egypt, there is no single Nubia, of course, there are administrative divisions but these are administrative divisions which serve certain purposes. They do not necessarily reflect the complexity of social encounters. Mm. That is my point. And mm. archaeological record is key for that. So for mm. example, teams of Professor Julia Butka from Munich or of Professor um, Stuart Eisen Smith. So Professor Butka working at Sai Island and then also uh, the work of uh, Professor Smith at Tombos is changing these old uh, narratives. It is mm. making us think about other possibilities. And this mm. is very important. So broadly speaking, if we, if we had to summarize, you know, up until the, the 1960s, scholars liked to talk about colonialism from the Egyptian perspective and in their less admirable moments, they could use that to justify other forms of colonialism in the modern age and say, nothing's changed, it's the same way it is. But that was a mistake. And then at the same time, in the in the sort of push towards post-colonialism, we have to be careful not to simply switch our perspective from the colonizer to the colonized, because then we're still just focusing on the same relationship and we're not giving the the subject people's 
their proper attention or given them their own proper agency and story. Exactly. My point is not that there was no oppression in the past. Mm. Of course there was. But my mm. point is that these sorts of oppression do not have to be necessarily the same as the ones we know in other places of the world and which we collectively group as colonialism. So mm. there, there is no one colonialism. There are different mm. forms of colonialisms in plural. Mm -hmm. and whether or not we are going to call this experience of life in New Kingdom Nubia life in a colonial society is, in my opinion, irrelevant as long as we know what do we mean by that. Mm -hmm. So if we simply use the terms not clarifying what do we mean by that, we are landing in the same position as the 19th and early 20th century scholars. Mm -hmm. So this is this is my point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now I ask Urash some questions about his career as a researcher, his inspirations for getting into Egyptology, and the one thing he'd like to know if he could answer any question. So Urash, that brings me to the end of my questions about uh, Nubia Egyptians historical sources. So thank you for those very detailed and very um, nuanced answers. I think you've given given a lot to think about and a lot to consider moving forward. If you have time, I'd like to move just to a couple of quick questions about you as a researcher and your career and what sort of brought you into this field. So at the, at the initial point of entry, what drew you to archaeology, anthropology, and Egyptology as something you were interested in? And then what inspired you to make that your career? Yeah, so uh, to answer this question, I am one of those kids who followed their childhood dream. So I basically knew more or less when I was seven years old that I want to be an archaeologist dealing with ancient Egypt. And mm -hmm. funny fact, at my first uh, school party, it was, I think, a school excursion, my costume was a mummy, and I was seven <laughs> years old. So this, this passion uh, continued, and I think this passion came from popular culture and Egyptomania I was exposed to, but continuously through my childhood, my parents... Uh, yeah, worked a lot um, on uh, providing me and my brother with good uh, books to read and yeah. uh, good shows to watch about archaeology, history, and so on. And this is what uh, made me decide to study archaeology. But also, when I was a high school student, I spent some time at the Petnica Science Center in Serbia their archaeology program for high school students, where I got the first introductions to archaeology, and I also uh, worked on my first excavation uh, back then. And then I enrolled to archaeology and uh, decided to specialize Egyptian archaeology. And the rest is history, as they say. Yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, so as you just mentioned, you've you know participated in excavations and fieldwork, both in Egypt and um, outside of Egypt. Just out of curiosity, do you have any particularly standout memories or experiences that are especially treasured? 
Yeah, so um, I worked for now almost a decade in Egypt. And of course, as you can imagine, there are a lot of stories and a <laughs> lot of impressions. Um, <laughs> but I think the one I would really like to kind of, yeah, share is um, an excavation I would never, I would have never uh, imagined I, I, I would work at. And that was uh, a salvage excavation by Swiss uh, Institute uh, in Aswan, where we excavated a quota of the medieval Islamic town of Aswan. And uh, it was a salvage excavation and we had only two weeks um, to save that what could have been saved. And I think we did a tremendous job, but we worked from six o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock in the evening. Mm. So then back uh, in the house with documentation. But I think this experience is important to share with the audience because when people think about Egypt and archeology span in Egypt, they tend to associate this one with Pharaonic Egypt, with maybe Ptolemaic and Roman period at best, but everything mm. which comes later on simply doesn't come into the discourse, mm -hmm. especially medieval and Ottoman and early modern archaeology there. Mm. Even less salvage archaeology in urban environments such as Aswan. Mm. And I think this is really, really important to stress that mm. maybe future young archaeologists should focus also on this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So coming now to my final question, and this is something that I ask every person who comes on this show, and it sort of gives an insight into personalities and interests, more, more, more importantly, interests. My question is that if you could, if you could look back and resolve one historical issue or answer one question about the ancient world, if you could answer this thing with 100% certainty just to put this issue to rest and move on to other topics. If you could know one thing or answer one question, what would you choose to know and why? This is an interesting question. Um, yeah, so I guess my answer at this point will be related to my current project. So as I already said at the beginning of this conversation, my current project here in Austria is uh, on third millennium pottery, especially first intermediate period pottery from Komombo. And mm -hmm. I think the issue I would like to resolve in my future career is the issue of first intermediate period chronology, especially synchronization between lower and upper Egypt, mm -hmm. because as you and the audience probably knows, um, First intermediate period is exactly the period where we lack enough uh, sources which illuminate the order of different kings and uh, their synchronizations as the country was divided between the Heracleopolitans and the Kivans. And uh, I think this is something I would like to resolve. One, by extensive settlement archaeology of first intermediate period in Lower Egypt, especially the Delta, because this is uh, absolutely unknown, mm -hmm. and with C14 dating, because mm. we do not have enough C14 dates for this period. 
so this is mm. yeah but now as you as you ask me there is one more thing which drop uh, like came to oh, my mind i said one yeah. question but i'll no i'll no, it's fine right. oh, very quickly <laughs> as i started working in egypt in tel Aldaba in avaris mm. i think i think i would like to know where and how were the Hyksos kings of the 15th dynasty buried? Because we mm -hmm. don't have a single Hyksos king burial. And mm -hmm. although I am working in settlement archaeology and I'm not uh, into excavation of tombs, mm -hmm. but they do pop up also on sites where I work, these particular tombs I would love to find. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Okay. So if you could resolve one issue, you would choose to know the chronology and true his archaeological um, background of the first intermediate period. And the other one question you'd like to know is where were the Hexos kings buried? Another one question, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. <laughs> okay. Well, Urosh, that brings me to the end of my questions. So thank you very much for coming on the show, and I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Thank you very much for having me. I really loved this conversation, and uh, some of your questions actually triggered some thoughts in my mind about maybe some future aspects I will consider. Excellent. So thank you. Well, I hope you will consider coming back on the show in the future to discuss other topics that you're interested in and, you know, the future direction of your research. I would be honored. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the epilogue. A little bit of extra discussion that I cut out for time. Earlier in the episode, Urosh discussed royal texts, stelae, which were carved on blocks of stone and erected at certain fortresses and temples. Egyptian stelae are powerful tools of communication. But now, Urosh and I speculate a little bit about how these objects might have communicated to different types of people in those certain contexts. It's a little bit of imagination and just general freewheeling ideas. If you'd like some extra detail, sit back and enjoy. As the conversation starts, Urosh is talking about stelae and their context, how the place and the idea behind it affects our reading. When we, when we compare these different realities, we always have to take context into consideration. And more, even more specifically, when it appears in a fort, only a small number of people living in that fort can read it. 99% of the soldiers probably are not literate. So it is communicating to priests, scribes, high officials. It's communicating to the people participating in the very system that it's describing. I agree entirely, but there I will also add something which I wrote in my, my presentation, also published later, is that these scribes who are the ones who read are also the people who can talk. So even sure. if you cannot read, you can be read too. Mm -hmm. Of course, we can now open the question, what is really being communicated to you? But we should be careful saying that just because someone was not literate enough to understand everything, 
did not get the message oh, because sure. yeah. people communicate among themselves. Yes. Hmm. Should we? I wonder. Should we imagine? This is purely purely speculative, but it may, perhaps is a fun idea that any any time a, a new a new battalion or a new regiment arrives at the at the fort, do they have to sit down in a semicircle around the steeler while the local commander says, "This is why we're here," and I'm going to tell you about the greatness of our king Senusaret. I wonder if that that sort of public storytelling happened. It's a really interesting idea, which I really like, but, you know, we simply do not have any evidence, which would definitely mm-hmm. confirm that, mm-hmm. but I would not exclude this, mm-hmm. because we have to be aware of the fact that some of these men came from Egypt into a land which was maybe foreign for them. We tend to think about Egypt as a land, but we forget that even for the Egyptians, local identity, local towns, like very specific locations played much larger role in their own definition of who they are. And maybe some of them never left, let's say, Upper Egypt or never left Delta or never even left you know, they're known or never never even left their town, but all of a sudden they found themselves there. And, mm. you know, maybe it is a dangerous parallel, but why not? I think Professor Spellinger is also doing that kind of research. We can use experiences from other uh, military contexts in other mm-hmm. societies which can tell us about how morality can be boosted Mm-hmm. exactly through texts and images which are communicated to soldiers yes some um, so again to summarize you know we we imagine egypt as a a grand unified nation the two kingdoms the two lands but this is a modern construction based on pretty lines on a map that give us a very specific idea of what egypt is for the average ancient egyptian there their town, their region, for 99% of their lives, that was the limits of their horizon. And they probably did not travel out of it that often by comparison to modern travel with cars and trucks where distances are much easier to traverse. Take a, take a group of soldiers out of their home community, away from their family, away from their friends, away from their cousins, people they've known for their entire life, throw them into a fort, on the very limits of the world that they know, whether it's Sinai, Canaan, uh, northwest like Libya, or down into down into Nubia, these men are, and perhaps you know the women who are there as well, are isolated from their homes, from their communities, from their original support network. For the Egyptians who were, you know, quite savvy at psychological uh, communication they needed to make sure these troops understood why they were there and worked together, had a sense of shared purpose and community. And texts and images are one way to communicate to the people. You know, yes, you're far away from home. Yes, you're probably feeling lonely. This is why we are here. 
I agree, but I would also add that we should really be careful uh, about the degree of their isolation. For example, okay. uh, Professor Christian Knoblauch, who is, uh, he was based at my institute here in Vienna, but now he's uh, a lecturer uh, in Clancy. Uh, he actually demonstrated that uh, these military forts were supported from Egypt economically, even with resources. Mm. So, like, not only that they produced pottery at site, but pottery was also brought into mm. uh, these forts, meaning that, of course, there was a connection to the hub in Egypt. And uh, what I what I specifically mean by isolated is um, separate from your family, loved ones, yeah. the people you are with, socially with. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. That's, yeah, I guess I, I think I mean isolation in the 21st century sense, where everyone is connected, but everyone's lonely all the time. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. All these these communities were not on their own. They were there were ships coming and going. There were caravans bringing supplies, bringing letters, um, dispatches. You know, we have right. we have information for that. So yeah, they're not they're not on their own, um, even if they are separate from. The places they grew up, the people they know. So, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode was by Keith Zizza and Bettina Joy de Guzman. Follow the links in the episode description to hear more of their wonderful tunes. That's all from me. I'll see you soon. French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.